Okay, well, we're in August. July's gone, and so is the summer. So if the schools keep moving it back, then they'll start back in July next year instead of August. We started in second week of September, I think. So we're moving along, and we're moving along in our study in Matthew as well. So this is our August 5th study. This is Lesson 35 from uh, Matthew's Gospel. And we, were, we finished up last week. We were looking, been looking at the uh, Beatitudes. We got through those last few verses there that comment on the persecution of Christians. We dwelt on that, wound up doing a couple of lessons on that. And it took some time to reflect upon uh, really worldwide persecution and really comparing that to the the level of persecution that we experience here, which is quite a difference, uh, quite a difference in what we experience. If we go back and look at that, look at that, we're kind of left with, you know, uh, the difficulties that come from following Christ. We focused upon that. But I'm so thankful that the Holy Spirit in, in Matthew's gospel, you know, he records the words of Christ here that take us to a point of transition now. So that's where we are right now. We can leave that behind and we can look toward encouragement, uh, specifically about the impact of the gospel message on the world and how the Lord uses that. So there's a, a definite transition here. He focuses now upon our righteous living and our righteous conduct. And we begin to see God's plan more clearly in saving us and the reason that He leaves us here. and What we're supposed to be about. The things that we're supposed to consider as we prioritize our life. How are we spending our lives? Spending, probably not the best word. A better word would be investing our life. And He's going to tell us that the Lord is going to use this. This is what He's going to do. And he's got a couple of, I guess they're metaphors, similes that he uses here, often referred to as the similar two things that he uses to get our attention to make uh, uh, an indelible impact upon the hearer's mind when he talks about salt and light. And I hope we can hear it today just as they heard it back then. And think of it like they thought about it. When we think about salt today, I'm sure the first thing you think about is table salt, you know. Or if you're in my case, your wife's saying, you shouldn't eat salt. You need to put salt on everything. You shouldn't eat salt. But, you know, we think of it as a, as a condiment. And they would have done the same, but it had a lot of different uses. And it was mentioned, not by mistake, it was mentioned for the purpose, as we often say, of conjuring up a mental image that was to be created to help people better understand the Word, the impact here of the Word of God. So that's what we look at this morning from chapter 5, verse 13, where he says, you are the salt of the earth. You're the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? How can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So we see a little bit at the end of this scripture here, uh, what you could perceive as a bit of a warning or a realization about 
a person, if you will, losing their saltiness. So this is a big deal. Even in this one verse here, you have the potential of it. You have what we're called to be. We're to be the salt of the earth. We're to be that which makes a difference in this life. And yet, to endanger that potential somehow is a serious business. It's, it's good for nothing, he says, except to be thrown out and to be trampled underfoot by men. Again, these words chosen to make an impact upon us about not only the potential of our witness and life, the righteousness that we now have because of Christ and Him working through us, but equally as important, the, the seriousness of not taking care of that of maybe having the words salt, a salty life. It's on some t-shirts now. The salt life. You see that? Having that imprinted upon us and yet not being very salty. That's not a good thing. It's a dangerous thing. And as we'll see later, sometimes it looks like if we lose that, it's hard to get that back. Hard to get that back, at least with certain individuals and certain situations, we might not be able to recover that. So we look specifically at salt. And some identified, (coughs) as our commentators say, about 11 different uses for salt, even in ancient times. So we kind of want to look at, well, what was he specifically talking about here? What, what What analogy were they supposed to be making when this word was being used. Two scriptures refer to salt as a condiment that we mentioned, Job 6.6, 6, Colossians 4.6. We know that salt is a preservative and we can go 900 yards making examples and parallels with that and they would be, they would be accurate, um, used to prevent spoilage, particularly in, in that day. It was used for that. Salt was used as a purifying agent. Now this starts getting close to uh, what we understand to, to believe the reason for, for this word being used in the first place. That it was a purifying uh, agent. That it was a preserving agent. And these go together. And we'll mention this again because you don't want to preserve what has not been purified, do you? You don't want to do that you're going to preserve something, you want it to be clean first. You want it to be pure first. So interestingly enough, salt must, by its very nature, purify before it preserves. Now this is what they would have been, been thinking about. The Greeks used salt to symbolize moral purity. This would have been on their mind, just in the historical and and cultural readings of the day. We can go back and look at history and see that. This would have been on the mind of the people who were hearing this word used to instruct them. Jesus' disciples are to purify the world how? How do we have an impact on making the world more pure? How do we do that? Well, we do that by living holy lives by allowing the righteousness of Christ which we now possess to work its way through us. That's that's the battle, is it not? That indeed is the battle. And that's what we want to be able to do. We do it 
by that example in our life, and we do it by speaking, by proclaiming the Word of God, by being ready to do that, by, by constantly holding the, the preciousness, the preparation of the Word within our heart. I, I mentioned earlier, you know, from Peter, being ready, you know, always being ready, as he says, to give an account of that blessed hope that we have. That's how it happens. Now, granted, this is all the work of Christ. This is all because of the work that Christ has done. Because when we talk about righteousness and living a righteous life and displaying righteousness, surely we have to to stop and once again reflect on the fact that we have no righteousness of our own. We have none. We're, We're destitute. We are without. We have only that which has been imputed or imparted to us. And thank God for that. And what he focuses on here is the tremendous impact and the potential of that. Moving again from the times of persecution, that reality, to the fact that we we ought not lose hope because of the impact of the power of God's righteousness moving in our life. He describes it as salt, and later we'll describe it as light. They add that Christians are the one effective means of purifying the world. That's a strong statement. The one effective means. The the only one. And why would that be true? Why would that be true? Give me an answer this morning. Do you believe that's true? True enough. There you have it. We have the truth. The whole world is in consternation about what is the truth. It goes all the way back to Pilate. <laughs> what is truth? It goes all the way back to that. But we have the truth. We know the truth. We know how a person can be made whole and be right with God. We know how a person can be filled with the righteousness of God and begin to experience life in its fullness. And as we've discovered through studying the Beatitudes, experience a level of joy that the world does not know because the world does not have that power. That's real joy based upon real truth that empowers us to be flavor, if you will, in this world. There is still a draw to people who are living for Christ, who know the truth, who are expressing through their words, their tone, their actions, their involvements, everything about their ministry. They're expressing the person of Christ. That is still a draw to the world. Now when they find out what all is involved... And for them to be a partaker, they must confess, admit their sins, come humbly before God. Then there's conflict, right? Always will be. But God does His work through His church, through the body of Christ. Can He do it some other way? Yeah. If He wanted to. Poof. He can, he can do it. Greek word, poof. He can do it if He wanted to do that. But He doesn't want to do that. He's not chosen to do that. He's going to do it through His church. And we're privileged this morning if we're here and if we're in Christ and we're a member of Christ's church. 
born again, regardless of whether you're a member of Faith Community Church or not. You know Christ this morning. He's not just your Savior. He's your Lord. This is your potential. This is my potential to be salt, to be light, to make a difference, to be used of God Almighty. So this is extremely encouraging to us this morning. This is our potential because of the goodness and because of the grace of God. And I, and I really skip over this first word here. He says, you are the salt. Another imperative here. And it means you and no one else. That's the language that he used when he spoke this. That's who we are. That's what we have. This transforming power, he says, is not the result, not the result of political or social activism. That's not what it's about. Why? Because you can do all those things and leave out Christ. You can do, as we would say, the right thing for the wrong reason. You may have some level of success. And I find that when you point this out, when I'm dealing with folks who... I had a guy one time who wanted me to join this civic club. I won't call the name of the club. This was a few years ago. He wanted me to join this civic club. And it was sitting down and he started talking about all the impact that I could have and all the things that I could do and so on and so forth. And even had him say at one point, not the church. I'm not talking about the church. This is something different. He went on talking about how it would bring fulfillment in my life and so forth. And I had to, whoa, whoa. The church is my life. And by that I mean Christ, the head of the church, and my responsibility to Him, and my service to Him. That's where I get what you're talking about here. And first and foremost, it ain't about me being fulfilled. Okay, It's about me being obedient. And I'll take the, the, the goodness as it comes, or vice versa. There's a way that seems right to man. And what does the Scripture say? How does it complete that verse? But the ends thereof are the ways of death. Doing the right thing for the wrong reason, the wrong motivation won't get you anywhere. There are no points being accumulated in heaven because of that. It's what we do for Christ. It's what we do because of Christ. It's what we do through the power of Christ in us that makes us identifiable to this world as salty. And nothing else. Um, when we were in Croatia, Melina <clears throat> was talking to us about the influence of Christ in America and how um, we <clears throat> get very down on where we are. But she said, even though there are organizations like you talked about who are not Christ centered, that that's still kind of a result of, of a memory of Christianity that they don't have over there. Mm -hmm. So an example she gave was a, a, a family where the child had cancer. Churches in Croatia took up money, and here took up money to send the child to the United States to have to have procedures done, and that child lost all their hair. I don't know if it's a girl or a guy, but mm. they were at restaurants, and people would just pay for their dinner because they knew the family had a child with cancer, and and how that family was confounded that that would happen because nothing like that happens over there. Because they don't even have the, the collective memory of Christianity. Yeah, so wow. even though these non-Christian entities, they're not pushing Christ, they're still part of that that is a result of the fact that our country yeah. was infiltrated by, I mean, by Christians. And so um, 
know, we, yeah. we serve the Lord. They just Absolutely. have a memory of what it used to be, but it's still, that's where they get their doing good yeah. fulfillment from that they don't even yeah. see over there. And your words make me think of what we would refer to, if you see the link, of common grace. I mean, it keeps, you know, it, it's, it's an opportunity for right. Christians with the true word to come in on the, on the heels of that. And, and make things clear. <laughs> yeah. And, and so over here, we still have it. So she said, you know, we have to remember, we have to see that blessing. That is common grace. And yes, yeah. we have a lot of bad things going on over here. Yeah, and we're thankful for that because we know that that too is the work of God. Right, right. Yeah, we just see a bigger picture, if you will. We see an opportunity. And the motives are not the same. Yeah. My, my mind goes, when Paul's standing there talking to Felix and, Fe- and particularly Agrippa, and he says, I think I used this the other day, he said, I know that you know these things and understand these things. But he also knew at the same time where his heart was. And it was kind of like a, maybe you could call it a springboard, if you will. And when we're sensitive to those things, God's going to put us in those situations to be salt. That's a situation, you know, it's a, <laughs> I could use a metaphor, it's a, it's, it's a nice meal that's there, it's real, but you're going to come along and put the salt on it if you follow what I'm saying and make it more clear and get people rightly directed. That's good. Yeah, I appreciate that. So we thank God for what he's doing. We'd certainly be able to appreciate that if we went to a country where that was not present, where at least that much uh, uh, did not exist and you had to like start from the ground up uh, to educate folks, it would be difficult, very difficult. So we thank God. We thank Him for that. So we focus on this transforming power. And we mentioned just for a minute what it's not. Because again, it's not about political and, and social activism. It's about a moral transformation. That's what it's about. A moral transformation. A work that you and I cannot do in the life. We can write a check. We can give hours and... And again, from a, a social perspective, we can be some level of impact on our society. But we can't change a person morally. We can't do that. We can't go to a person's greatest need and affect that change. We can only be a mediator. We can only be a tool in, a hand, in the hands of God to both demonstrate with our life and our words the truth about who God is and what He has done to meet man's greatest need. That's what we focus upon. Uh, Again, a a reference to this book I've been studying for our study here on the Sermon on the Mount by Quarles. He says only Jesus' disciples can purify society because only His disciples are characterized by the superior righteousness that the Sermon on the Mount describes. Remember, we talked about when we started our study on the Sermon on the Mount, you know, you you step away from the empowerment of God, you lose that in contemplating all that we have here on this this Sermon on the Mount, particularly the Beatitudes. It becomes overwhelming. It's like, who can do this? Who can be like this? Certainly with any degree, you know, of regularity. And yet we know the more that we yield to Christ... And the greater power that we have, or maybe I should say the greater, the greater His power is manifested in us. We're, we're the hope. The church. The church of Christ. And we don't want to lose, we don't want to lose sight of that. Come right in. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? <laughs> good. Hey, good to see you. Good. Have a seat. Thought you was coming to get me. Oh, didn't know. 
That's all right. I'm glad that you're here. So that's what we're looking at. We look at Quarles' comment here. The righteousness, this righteousness that he's talking about here, and as Jesus will talk about when we get to the 20th verse here in chapter 5, exceeds, he says, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, think about that phrase spoken and what it meant to the hearer when they heard that. You, you mean the righteousness Christ, that Jesus, that you're talking about, you say, unless my righteousness, my personal righteousness, exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, I'm in trouble, okay? <laughs> what did that mean to them? Because they looked at these people. I mean, they were, these were the, the, the religious elite. That's who they were. To many, they were the example. And probably to most, they were the untouchables. Okay, I could never be like that because these, these people find favor with God. And you get the dregs of society. The, the prostitutes and the, the publicans and the, the wine bibbers and all these other people that Christ was so often accused of associating with and, and cohorting with, that's not what they're looking for. They're looking for something that can relieve their burden. And that's the difference. That's why they came. Because they were aware of their need. That's what the Word does. You take somebody who feels like they don't need Jesus, they're righteous, they have everything they need, they obviously have the favor of God in their life because they have health, they have wealth, they have whatever. That kind of person is going to be hard-pressed in their flesh to seek God. That don't happen. But you find people who are hurting. You find people who've tried everything. They've tried this and that. And they're still left with the burden of their own sin they're more apt to listen to you. Maybe not in every case. Certainly not. If it was, all those people would be saved. We've got to know our need. We've got to be able to come. And that's when our example of saltiness becomes most important. Because people are drawn to that as it reflects the power of Christ within a person. It deals with what's inward, not what's outward. In a person. Well, he adds here toward the end of the verse, he says, You can become tasteless, or if the salt loses its savor, it becomes tasteless. And he says, how, how can it be made salty again? And it's only good to be, to be trampled underfoot. I looked at that word there, it's translated in different ways, but it's the word Mariano, and it means to become insipid. Okay, and that word just literally means to lose all flavor, to lose all taste. Or we could say to become totally ineffective. It's also a word that's closely associated to a word that would represent foolishness in New Testament times. Okay. Some might have heard it that way. And that would have been appropriate because it's, this is the analogy. You have all this power. You have this which brings flavor which brings that which makes a difference in the lives of others, and you choose to reject it, or you don't protect it. You let it go by the wayside. You allow it to lose its flavor. That's what he's talking about. That, that in itself would be a foolish thing. You've got something that's very, very powerful here, here right from God. It's working your life, but if you don't protect it, that would be a foolish thing to do. 
Have you ever been so steeped in something, perhaps in your young Christian life, and I pray not right now, and you wind up praying that prayer, Lord, don't let me lose my testimony. Don't let me lose. Give me victory over whatever this is in my life because it's damaging. I don't want to lose my testimony because you have that awareness. Hey, that's all I have as a Christian. That's all I can give back to God is my life and my witness to Him. God forbid that I would allow something in my life to take over and to be a continual burden upon me. Not only the Word of God can encourage us there and strengthen us and convict us or do whatever word is necessary, work rather, in our life to make that change. So we do see it as, as a foolish thing to do, to allow anything to hinder, if you will, our abilities to reflect the, the saltiness that the Word Christ are talking about here. Christians can lose their effectiveness and their influence. And salt, which is impure, as the Scripture reflects, hard-pressed to purify it again. Can't do it, at least in that situation. So how can it be made salty again, he says. That should get our attention. A lot of times we only have one opportunity with folks, don't we? A lot of times we only have a limited amount of opportunities within a particular witness or opportunity. We want to be mindful of that. Divine forgiveness removes eternal consequences of sin. Don't misunderstand me. But it doesn't always eliminate the temporal consequences of sin, does it? We want to protect our reputation, our words, our saltiness, our ability, as we'll see in a moment, to be to be light in this world. When he says trampled underfoot, it's not good for anything. A cultural thing. They would take salt that was insipid, that was no longer good. And, and the salt in those days, it's hard to find salt that was actually totally pure. But they knew it had a, they knew it had a, a purpose. If it had lost its saltiness, it still had the power to keep things from growing. Whereas before... It's a very positive thing. Now you can take it and throw it on the ground. You can take it and throw it on a pathway somewhere and it'll actually choke out the foliage and keep the pathway clear. That would be a very common thing. They would throw it out there. And it would keep things from growing. I mean, what an example there. Whereas before something that brought flavor now destroys life because it's lost its power. Was this what they were thinking when he added that little... <laughs> part to his verbiage there perhaps they certainly would have known that they would have understood that so he uses that again to to get their attention we'll look at verse 14 of chapter 5 you are now the light of the world you are the light of the world you're a city set on a hill a city set on a hill he says cannot be hidden in other words, there's something significant that's, that's happened. Something significant within the person. And it can't be covered up. In other words, there is a natural, and I use the word natural here regarding the, the, the naturalness of the new spiritual life. There's something that's going to flow out. that can't be contained. It's going to be seen. It's going to be identifiable. 
It's going to flow out. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So we take this verse 13 that we read before in verse 14. You look at these two together and what it does, it highlights a disciple's responsibility to preach the gospel to the world. That's what he's saying. You're not empowered for no reason. The power of God doesn't rest on you. The knowledge that God has put within you, the equipping that God has done, and we could run with that and talk about spiritual gifts and how everybody can can work, everybody can serve. We know that. But this is done for a purpose. And he reminds us that this is what we're called to do. We're here for that purpose. As salt, Christians are the purifying agent. That's what we are. Purifying, preserving. As light, Christians are to establish righteousness in the world. Now again, I say that. I understand and you understand God does that through us. We have nothing of our own. But that's the impact that we can make because of what God has done within us. This word light, we've looked at it before from past scriptures. The word phos or phos, you know, phosphorus, you know, is a word that would come from that photo. But it means to shine, simply. It means to make manifest. It means to shine in a way that reveals something. And that's why he uses. That word. You can go to the Old Testament. You can even go to the Dead Sea Scrolls. You can look certainly in the New Testament and you'll see that light and dark almost always represent what? Light and dark. Good and evil. John does a really good number with that. In the so that's what we see. This is what the people heard. Uh, it was directed to Paul's comments from Romans chapter 13 here. that has an impact on this. Listen to this. Practical with this same knowledge from Romans 13 beginning with verse 11. He says, Do this knowing that the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife, not in jealousy. But he adds, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Paul takes all these conceptions and brings them together right here, reminding us that right now, this day, while we have life, while we're in church, while we have the, the power and the fellowship of the church and the Word being taught to us, if I can make it real for us right now, I dare say the calling of God on each and every life in here to be of service in this fellowship, I pray that that's going on in some fashion. While we're experiencing all of that, take advantage of it. Take advantage of it. It won't always be that way, perhaps. Perhaps in our life. We don't know that. What we do know, what we've looked past at at some length, difficult times will come. That persecutions will come. They will. And he directs us to our own personal behavior here. And he mentions these specifics and reminds us that these are things that damage 
your saltiness. They are things that damage your ability to be light in this world. Call them what they are and deal with them. Deal with them according to the Word of God. And that always involves repentance, doesn't it? It always does. Put on the Lord Jesus. He directs us to Him. Put on Christ. What an all-encompassing directive. To put Him on in all of His fullness stands to reason that we take stuff off, right? Paul shares that with us in chapter 8. You take, you take the old life off. You put Him on. And our life is about Christ. It's about the person of Christ. It's about His provisions. And He tells us, be smart enough, don't make an opportunity for sin to grab a hold of you in your life. He says, make no provision for the flesh. We've remarked before, he, Paul would say, we, we understand Satan. He says, we're not ignorant of his devices. We're not in ignorance there. Knowing that, do a little homework. Make some preparations, he says. But don't make a provision for the flesh. Don't put yourself in a position that you don't want to be in. Don't do it. <clears throat> there's, a lot, there's a lot at stake. I love looking at the Old Testament's use of light as I was studying here. And, and much of what you find, well, you can go through find different examples, but I'll kind of focus on Isaiah and some of his words here because it always symbolized revelation of God, instruction from God when they talk about light. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, and you'll be familiar with this verse as it talks about Messiah. It says, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And those who live in the dark land, the light will shine on them. A reflection on Messiah, who is our, of course, our example. Matthew quoted that back in chapter 4, if you remember, when we were studying there. Chapter 4, verse 16, talking about Christ as the light. And then again in Isaiah 42, verse 6, he says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. Right? We now have a righteousness that comes from God. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people. And then he adds, as a light to the nations. When Christ uses the word light here, they know what He's talking about. They know the potential of it. You know, back in Luke chapter 2, Verse 32, you'll remember when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus, you know, it was his eighth day, I believe it was. And the Simeon was in there, the old prophet who had been praying and wanting to see. And he uses this phraseology when he looks upon the babe. He says, talks about him being a light of revelation to the Gentiles. This has always been the way it is. And Christ is the great light, and he's chosen. To put a little bit of that light, genuine light, in us. In us. That is a wonderful reality. That is a wonderful possession for us. It's to be protected. It's to be identified. It's to be utilized in this life. That's where the real rubber meets the road. A couple more from Isaiah 49.6, he says, He says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, or he means here just to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. 
I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. It's always been that way. It was that way when the promise came to Abraham. He was to be a light to the nations. The Gentiles were always involved. What does that have to do with Matthew? He's going to do that through his church. He's going to do that through us. This is a precious thing. It's a powerful thing that we are in possession of because of the goodness and the grace of God. This is what we have to share. Again, this very verse Paul quotes in Acts chapter 13, verse 47, when he's preaching there in Antioch. And the Jews are hounding them and so many good things are happening. And it's interesting, as I read that a little bit and studied it, there were three different groups there because Paul remarks that he's talking to the brethren. He's talking to people who are believers. He's talking, he says, to the sons of Abraham. And he distinguishes these two groups. And then he adds he's even talking to those who are just God-fearers, proselytes, those who fear God. These are the three groups. This is what he's talking about. And he quotes this very verse, again, identifying the link between the power of the light of God in us And how that's related to what God did from the very beginning with sending Messiah. We're part of that picture. A very important part. And then lastly from Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1. The command, he says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the people's. But the Lord will rise upon you and His glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to you, to your light, rather, left my R off, will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. This was a promise to Israel. A promise to Israel. Now, the church has not replaced Israel. We're not going there. But the truth of God's Word and what He does, He does through the church as well. That's who we are. We have everything that we need to be an adequate reflection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because of His light and what He has put within us. The disciples of Jesus are to be and will be characterized by righteousness and purity. And their righteousness, here's the good news, will move others to glorify God and it will move others to be seek. They'll seek to be transformed by Him in a similar way. When's the last time somebody told you, I'd love to have what you have? Because they see the reality of it. They see the impact of it. They see the, the genuineness of your peace, if you will. That peace the Bible describes as that which passes all understanding. They see that in your life. They, they don't know how to get there. Well, you can't there apart speaking the truth to them and letting the light of God rest upon their life. That's what we want to do. He speaks of the world. You know it as the word cosmos, an all-encompassing word. It means the adorning world. It means the world and everything in it kind of a thing. In Acts 1.8, we're reminded where he says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the remote, remotest parts of the earth. That's pretty specific about what we're to do 
with this flavor that we have about our existence, this light that we carry that God has imparted to us. Because he says this, the city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And the meaning here is clear. It means specifically it's not able to be hidden. It's not possible for it to be It's impossible for a true disciple not to shine in the world. We have that potential. And if we don't, it ought to get our attention. It really ought to get our attention. He adds, nor does anyone, verse 15 now, move along and see if I can finish up with verse 16 as well. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. He continues to make these examples. Again, to, uh, to place upon the mind of the hearer the importance of this, the power of this. This must be a reality in our life. And what he's doing is it says he's, he presents a nonsensical picture. In other words, this is not hard to figure out. This is kind of common sense, if you will. A nonsensical picture of someone lighting a lamp and, and only just placing a container over it. Why would you do that? It wouldn't make any sense to do that, in other words. Also, you might consider if you place a cover over a lighted lamp, what happens? It goes out, doesn't it? <laughs> Don't cover up your witness. Don't cover up the salt and light that you bring to the world and to a life because of what God has done. Make a habit of doing that. It'll go out. Disciples are to express the glory of God through their righteous living, through their bold witness. Even the fact that he mentions putting it on a lampstand symbolizes the necessity of maximizing one's ministry. In other words, you put it up where it can do its best work. It's most far-reaching work. You, you put it up on a, on a pole, if you will. Our witness is not to be concealed from anybody. We're to use it and we're to share. This is God's plan. This is His will. This is His way regarding the Christian life. So lastly, we can look at verse uh, 16 in our study this morning. And here's the verse that we're all familiar with, I trust. He brings it all together when he says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Pretty plain, pretty simple, straightforward. He brings it all together for us and tells us to let that light shine. And it speaks specifically, it's a word that's related to works. But not works for the sake of grace, not work for the, for the sake of glory, but works specific, specifically because this is what God has ordained for us. In fact, Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And then it adds, Which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. This is God's doing. Once again, reminding the believer, the worker, that this is, all we can do is yield. All we can do is make ourselves available. Step away from the things of the world, if you will, to be practical about it. Allow God to do that work within us. We're not to be a silent witness. We're to speak and we're to live. We're to example. 
witness of a believer is our words and our works, the things that we do for Christ and we're used of Him in ministry. A righteous life, looking at a life, speaks volumes. You know, you often hear, uh, I don't know if I can quote it, but I know somebody talks about their conversation with Gandhi one time, talking to him about Christ. Some of you could do better with this than me. It just popped in my head, but I think it's a good example. And he said, well, I could be, I could be persuaded to be a Christian if I could find at least one person who acted like a Christian. That's a, a paraphrase of what he actually said, but that's what he was talking about. Show me somebody who lives these things, if you will, this, this, this high, high standard. Certainly, probably he had the, I'm sure he'd read the Bible many times, but he, he has the, perhaps the Beatitudes in mind here. Show me somebody who lives that way, <coughs> who treats people that way. And maybe I could be compelled to be a Christian. Or as one says, your, your life is speaking so much to me, I have a hard time yielding to your words okay well, again one would say if you were if you were arrested for being a christian would there be enough evidence to convict you <laughs> you could look at it that way this meshing of the life lived and the words spoken god the father is the christian absolutely the christian's source of good deeds period he tells us that we're to hunger and thirst for, for this righteousness. We're to, we studied this. We know that back in verse 6 of chapter 5. But we also looked at the fact that it's God who does the filling. We cannot get away from that. Again, it's, it, it, puts, it puts impossible demands on us regarding the Beatitudes and what we'll continue to look at from the Sermon on the Mount. All the way up into chapter 7. <coughs> impossible requirements upon us if we don't consider and rest upon the fact that it's the Lord who makes this possible in our life. He's given us of His Spirit. We're to illustrate His character. We're to illustrate His divine nature. Because He tells us, He says, that we are to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And that word means mature. It doesn't mean without sin. It doesn't mean without error. It means mature. Matthew 5.48. We'll get there soon. But we trust Him. That's what we're to think about. We're to think about the potential that we have. That we can live above this world. We can strive through through only the power of Christ to be this salt and this light in the world. The Westminster Catechism asks a question. It says, what is the chief end of man? You can look it up and read it there. And it answers it. It says it's to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. We'll not be able to do that apart from His strength. The motto of the Protestant Reformation was Soli Deo Gloria, the glory of God alone. Not for us, not for a better life, not for accolades, not necessarily for peace and safety because we're not guaranteed of that. We may only be able to experience what our forefathers experienced in prison, singing and being joyful while we're in prison and being thankful, as he says, that we were counted worthy to suffer for his name. That kind of worship comes out of a heart that knows where it's established, not in itself, not in its own efforts, but in what God has done for us 
through the person of Jesus Christ, through His sacrifice. And yet we're made partakers of that. We are ministers, as Paul says, of reconciliation. We are the church as believers, and God is going to use us to make an impact on the world. I pray that He'll do that in your life today and throughout the week to come. Let's pray together.